The Lone Ranger first appeared in 1933 in a radio show conceived by WXYZ Detroit Radio Station. That was owned then by George W. Trindle, and the show's writer was Fran Stricker, or Stryker maybe is how you pronounce it. And you might recall how it would start with trumpets. The Lone Ranger, a fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty, there it is, hi-ho, silver, away! All right, enough of that. Well, the radio series proved to be a hit and spawned a series of books, largely written by Stryker and later an equally popular television show that ran from 1949 to 1957. The title of the show, however, is still used today to describe someone who acts alone, without consolation or the approval of others, a loner, being a lone ranger. Now, when it comes to church, to mission, to outreach, to ministry, I simply want to ask you a very basic, very simple question. Are you a loner? Do you act alone? Do you consult with others or do you do your own thing? Do you work with the church in connection with the church, with the approval of the church? Or do you follow your own ideas in your own way, according to your own schedule, your own time? In our series on the life of Paul, we've learned many things and many lessons along the way. But in today's piece, we're going to look at the value of working together for the cause of God. Today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, and we're going to see that we are stronger together, that we need each other, and that Lone Ranger ministry, if you will, is not part of God's plan. In fact, if you go back to the storyline of the Lone Ranger, he really was himself not a loner, was he? The storyline goes that a posse of six members of the Texas Ranger Division were pursuing a band of outlaws and they were ambushed in a canyon named Bryant's Gap. But later, an Indian named Tonto stumbles onto the scene and discovers one ranger is barely alive, and he, Tonto, nurses the man back to health. In some versions, Tonto recognizes the lone survivor as the man who saved his life when they were both children. So even the lone ranger was not alone. These types of pictures crack me up. The old westerns where they're tracking and they have to bend down on one knee and they have to put their hand in the hoof print. Maybe they'll taste something. I don't know what they're tasting for. or either, well, I don't know what the handprints are for, but they can automatically know, yes, they were here two hours ago and they went west. The reality is if we were made for partnership, weren't we? We were made for community. You recall in creation, Adam noted that all the animals had partners. And so God put him to sleep and created Eve from one of his ribs as a helpmate. Moses, he wasn't alone either. God placed him with Aaron. You also recall that there was Caleb and Joshua. There was David and Jonathan. And later, David had his mighty men, all named 20-some men. Elijah, well, he had Elisha. And Jesus himself set the rule by not only surrounding him with 12 and drawing extra close to three, but he sent them out how? Two by two, in pairs. 
No, the Lone Ranger mentality was never God's plan because he knew that there was greater power in two. So to begin, I invite you to open your Bibles. Some of you already have. And we're going to Acts chapter 11. I hope you brought your Bibles with you this morning as we're continuing our series on Paul, a man of grace and grit. And Paul gets more of a mention towards the end of this section, but we're in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And there, reading from the New King James Version, I read, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, remember we talked about Stephen and the stoning of Stephen and the persecution that followed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. You may recall the last time we saw Saul, he had made his way to Jerusalem with high hopes of convincing his colleagues, but they rejected him just as they rejected Stephen. In fact, his fate was going to be the same, and Saul was okay with that. But in a vision, God told Saul, no, you need to flee the city. I have other plans for you. And so these unnamed disciples took Saul, and they lowered him in a basket, and he flees to Tarsus. Now, various commentators say various things about how long he was there. Some say five years, six years, some as much as 10 years in Tarsus. But regardless of the time, Saul is away, content to do the ministry set before him there in the area of Tarsus. And we don't get much explanation of what he has done. Very little is said, yet Saul is there and he is content in the shadows. If this is where God has sent him to go, this is where he'll go. And until God tells him to go and do otherwise, this is where he will be. And so for a period of time, Saul is there. And about somewhere in this time, we imagine Saul in his mid-40s. Galatians 1, 21 and 23 give us the indication that He is laboring in the regions of Syria and Cilicia, proclaiming faith which once he destroyed. So he's not twiddling his thumbs. He's staying busy in ministry. But we have very little commentary of what's being done. Now here's the map of what we've been using here. We have Jerusalem kind of there in the middle, just above the bolded uh, Moab. And then up above that, you see Antioch is here. This is the one we're going to be talking about today. Tarsus is over here. The expanse or the travel is really about 100 miles by the time you go around. And then you see Cyprus is the island to the west. And so that's the region that we're talking about. And interestingly, God uses the persecution of the church, the persecution of Stephen, to spread the gospel to new regions. Often in the midst of our persecution, we are wondering, what is going on? Why is this happening But here God uses something terrible to bring about something good. We see again that the blood of the martyrs is seed to spread the gospel to the world. And so going back to our verse, reading verse 19 again, now those who were scattered after persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Verse 20, But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or we could say Gentiles, if you will, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
and verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, this is incredible. Antioch was at that time the metropolis of Syria with an estimated population of 300,000 people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, you had Alexandria, and then third on the list was Antioch. In fact, there were some 20 to maybe as many as 60,000 Jews living there in Antioch at this time. And being the third largest city, it was because it had extensive commerce. You could find whatever you wanted. It was known as a resort for lovers of ease and of pleasure. It had beautiful surroundings. There was plenty of wealth and culture. There was fine arts. It was a prided city of luxury and vice. Morals were lax, to put it mildly. Society, while it was very secular, it was jaded. In fact, it was immoral and corrupt. There were cult prostitutes at the shrine of Daphne, just a few miles outside of the city. Yet in this city, we find a group preaching about Jesus. I mean, who is doing that? Well, the reality is we don't know. They're not named. There's a group. They're preaching Jesus. The gospel is spreading, but we're not told by who. They don't mention Philip or Peter or Saul. There's no Mark Finley in the passage, no Doug Batchelor. No names are given. It's simply a group of people that have relocated because of the persecution in Jerusalem. And now the work is spreading, not just with the Jews, but it's spreading now with the Gentiles as well. Now we kind of skipped over rather quickly, but in Acts chapter 10 and the first part of 11, we see God opening the work for the Gentiles. In fact, you might recall Cornelius, a Gentile, has a vision and an angel tells him to send men to Joppa. We got to go there this last spring, Elizabeth and I, and we got to go to Simon the Tanner's house, so they think. Not that big of a place anyway. And to ask for Peter at just the right time, Peter had a vision of many unclean animals and the angel tells him to arise and eat and Peter refuses because he's never eaten anything unclean before. But the voice says, what God has cleansed you must not call common or unclean. And then virtually at that moment, there's a knock at the door. And sure enough, here are these men. Before he even goes down to the door, the same voice, the angel tells him, Peter, there's three men, go with them without hesitation for I've sent them. So Peter does just that. He goes and meets Cornelius, the Gentile, and he realizes the point of the vision has nothing to do with snake sandwiches or rat chips, but it has to do with God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles and they start to speak in tongues. It becomes evident that this is no longer just for the Jewish people, but it's for all mankind. The gospel to go forth to all people. And who is God going to use in Antioch? His people. No names given, no names necessary, no hero, but simply his people empowered by the Lord to do his work. And so in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord, key, the hand of the Lord was with them, these unnamed individuals, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. You might be scratching your head asking, how in this, in this godless, this sex-jaded, this thrill-seeking, immoral society will the gospel ever get a foothold? 
Well, the hand of the Lord was with them. And friends, if God's hand is in it, if people are thick with the Almighty, if they're convicted in what they're saying, if they are in relationship with Jesus Christ, they will share. And lives will be transformed. People will be convicted. Because the reality is sin is fun for a time. But leaves one feeling more and more empty, alone, isolated, depressed, discouraged. At some point, after another hangover, another empty relationship, another cheap thrill, people are left saying to themselves, is this all that there is? Is there nothing else to life? And here we have a group of people who are able to answer the question and say, no, this isn't it. Let me show you what it's all about. Let me show you the God that will give you life and health and strength and purpose and meaning and peace of mind. And these secular people are responding to that. Hey, I thought you were going to go with me to the party. Not today, man. I'm done with that stuff. What do you mean you're done with that stuff? I found something better. Oh, can I have some? You sure can. And it's spreading. Who doesn't want hope in this hopeless age? Who doesn't want a future when life seems futile? So how did the church grow in Antioch? TMI, total member involvement. Because total member involvement grows the church. It was not a big time evangelist. It was not comprehensive 47 point plan. It was every member doing something for Jesus. Well, what should I do? Something. What is it going to look like? Something. Pray about it. It might be health ministry. It might be men's ministry, women's ministry. It might be a new ministry. But every member is doing something for Jesus and it's spreading. Now, I'm not saying that we should be disorganized in the effort. I'm not saying it's wrong to plan. Those are all good things. But I am saying it is the overall work of everyone working together that is bringing about big results. We just read it. A great number believed and turned to the Lord because of total member involvement. An impact was being made. Hundreds of people sharing their faith in practical ways. And you know what I love most about TMI? Who gets the credit? Nobody does. God always deserves the credit, doesn't he? He's the one that changes hearts in the first place. What happened to your city? Well, this big evangelist came and preached this huge sermon. We had this mass baptism. Nope. Everybody doing something for Jesus. Everybody having a role to play. Nobody being able to tell which or how or what. It was just a God thing, and he worked miraculously, and lives were changed. It's beautiful. Continuing on. Verse 22, then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Why would news come to the church of Jerusalem? Because three people were baptized a long ways away? No, because there's this movement underfoot. Things are happening in this secular city. We don't know how to explain it. We don't know how to describe it. Not just Jews, but Gentiles and word travels and they hear about it in the church in Jerusalem. And so they send somebody and who do they choose to send? Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Continuing on verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I think they made a good choice in sending Barnabas. Why? Because Barnabas was an encourager. Do you recall in the earlier sermons how it was Barnabas that encouraged Saul in Jerusalem and had him introduced to the disciples when everybody else didn't want to have anything to do with him? Think about Saul for a minute. 
discouraged. Nobody comes alongside him and he says, this isn't for me, never mind, game over, and sets up shop doing something else entirely. And we lose this giant of a man held up by God's strength and God's purpose and God's power simply because people would not encourage him, but rather discouraged him. But it was Barnabas who came alongside and said, hey, I I think I can get an audience with these guys. Let me talk to them. I believe you. I believe your story. I believe you're sincere. Let me go to work a little bit. Just give me a little bit of time. I believe in you, Saul. That was Barnabas. And I imagine when Barnabas shows up here, when others only would see problems, Barnabas saw opportunities. When others would only see negatives, Barnabas saw positives. I mean, let's face it. You go into a secular city and you convert secular people. It's going to take time for changes to take effect. It doesn't happen overnight. They don't just go in one side of the baptismal pool and they come out the other side and everything is perfect and and fine and wonderful and dandy. You don't hear the gospel for the first time and just shed off all of these layers of sin and all kinds of things that are happening in their life. And so Barnabas could have seen all the shortcomings. He could have seen all the ways that they fell short. And he could have said, this isn't genuine. This isn't legit. This is a problem. Well, what's the problem? Well, you got this and this and this and this and this and this and this. That's not what Barnabas does. Let's read it again. When he came, Barnabas, verse 23, and had seen the grace of God. Who performs any kind of change in anybody's life? Isn't it the grace of God active in the life? So he sees the grace of God making changes, and he's what? He's glad. He's saying, praise the Lord. Well, pastor, they haven't given this up yet. Pastor, they're still doing this activity over here. Pastor, they're still using this kind of language. Pastor, I still smell this on their breath. No, Barnabas is saying, I see work in them by the grace of God, and I'm glad. Does that mean there's no more work to be done? No. Does that mean all those other things don't matter? It doesn't. But it means that he was an encourager. He says, praise the Lord for what God is doing in this place. I mean, is it a wrong thing to say to somebody that still has a long way to go to say, I see Jesus in you. I see Jesus in what you're doing. I see Jesus in the choices and the decisions you're making. I see Jesus in your ministry. Yeah, but there's still, yes, what about any one of us that's still got some issue, some hang up, some problem? If there's any here without sin, you be the one to cast the first stone. But largely what the church needs is not more criticism, but more encouragement. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't keep people accountable. And we have God's word that tells us we need to do those things. But I also don't see in this list of spiritual gifts, criticism. But sometimes there are people that think that their spiritual gift is to sit back and to criticize. Not Barnabas. He says, I'm going to be an encourager. Forget everybody else for a minute. Think about you. You're at the workplace. It's a new job. It's a new boss, new coworkers. You don't know anything about what you're... I mean, you know a little bit, I suppose. You've been trained. You've done other things similar. But maybe you don't know anything about anything. And you come in, and you can have two types of bosses. One boss constantly points to everything that's wrong. That's wrong right there. Redo it. You messed up there again. Get it right. This is too long. That's too short. You took too much time. Whatever it might be. And each time, you just kind of feel yourself getting smaller and smaller and more and more frail, gun-shy, scared, unsure, insecure. But the second boss, we're never doing this before. You're a natural. Really? And this isn't, you know, quite perfect yet, but man, this is awfully close. I don't know if I've ever trained anybody that did one as, as good as this before. Wow. Hey, the way you did this, 
I got 12 other guys back here. They can't do anywhere close to what you just did on this one right here. Good job. Simple question. Which boss are you going to work harder for? The one that believes in you, that sees potential in you, that builds you up, or the one that constantly tears you down? Which one are you going to strive to impress? Which one are you going to decide, I'm going to show up early? I might even stay late. I want to do a good job. I want to continue to do my best. Yes, Barnabas was an encourager. He saw the positives. He saw the opportunities. In the midst of what certainly would have been shortcomings, he didn't focus on those. He didn't criticize the work. And I'm convinced even today the church does not need more critics, but more encouragers. To mentor and build up the inexperienced, to positively influence the immature towards maturity. Not in a negative way, but in a positive way. And we can be real. Sometimes you have to bear a negative message. But that's when you really spend time on your knees and you say, Lord, how can I present this negative thing as best as possible in a positive way? Sometimes we've been told that we, well, we, we flower with all the positives and then we hit the negatives. They actually say that's not the best way to go about it because we're too smart for that. We, we know when that's coming, right? Evaluation comes up, whatever it is. Maybe it's just the boss says, hey, I need to talk with you for a second. Okay. You come in, they say, you know, this is really great and you've been doing a fantastic job with this and this, these numbers are through the roof. And, but are you hearing anything of what he's saying? Probably not. You're waiting for the boom to fall, right? You're waiting for that one three-letter word. But there's this problem. So all the positives just went out the window because you're waiting for the three-letter word and here it comes and you find yourself defeated and then they leave. Do what they tell you is better off if you have to to bring about a negative? David, I brought you in here because I really need to talk to you about an area in your work performance. And you just go straight to the the chase. These numbers here are lacking, and I think it's a result of dot, 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 dot. You know, and I have to apologize for how I may have contributed to the problem because of these other factors. But, you know, I really think that you are a fantastic employee. I really think that you have skill sets that work well with this. And what you did over here on this project was phenomenal. And so I think with a little course correction, we can get this right and be back where we need to be. Will you be willing to work with me on that? Yeah, I can. And that's then where you say all the positives because I value you as an employee. You're gifted, you're smart, you're all... And now instead of it just going, gone, it kind of helps you, yeah, okay, we're going to get through this. It's all going to be okay. Barnabas was an encourager. He looked for the positive. And then verse 23, when he came and seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Don't give up. Continue on. You're doing great. Don't we all need encouragement like that from time to time? You thought you were doing the right thing, but then somebody came along with discouraging, disparaging comments. Somebody came along, some circumstance happened, and you're wondering if you, could, you should just chuck it all in. But somebody else comes along and says, stick with it. Persevere. Hang in there. We're with you. You're not alone. Wise encouragers see the good in what is happening. Are pleased with it and help it to grow and become more stable. And that's really the job of those more experienced, isn't it? They've weathered storms. They're not surprised or overwhelmed by problems. They have faith in times of crisis and can bring stability and comfort to less experienced believers. That's their job, to say, you know what? I had something similar happen to me, and it really shook me to the core too, but let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what God did. 
Let me show you what verses I claimed. And let me tell you where it is today. And I'm confident the Lord will do the same for you. Just hang in there. The church needs more encouragers. That's why we need experienced believers connected with new believers. Discipling, mentoring, encouraging. Not in a critical way, but in a way that builds them up and the work that the Lord is doing in their lives and ministry. And so, verse 24, for he was a good man, talking about Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. He was genuine, we could say. He was the real deal. He was praying on his knees every day, Lord, use me, fill me, break me. And then it says, and he had as a man of faith. I imagine it's not just that he had faith in God, but as an encourager, I imagine Barnabas also had faith in people. You know, sometimes you meet people, they have no faith in anyone. Everyone will let you down. Don't trust anybody. And I pity the person that has had such a bad experience in life that they feel like the only safe way to go is to be a lone ranger because it's a sad existence. Never trusting, never confiding, never opening up, never asking for help discrediting every word that comes across your ears. No, we need to have faith in God, but we also need to have faith in what God can do through his people. People will let us down. They're human. We've let people down ourselves, haven't we? But to have faith that God can use people. I mean, think about this. God has an incredible message, the three angels' message for the end time. People, get out of the way. Let me do this. Couldn't he do a better job? All right, all right, all right. I'll let the angels, people get out of the way. I'll let the angels do this. Couldn't they do a better job? But no, he says, people, I want to work in you and through you to let you do this work. I'll be there. I'll be helping you all along the way. I'm not going anywhere, but you're going to be my hands and my feet and my mouthpiece. This is incredible. As frail as we are, as sinful as we are, with the habits that we have, God says, I still want to use you. This is incredible. God has faith in people. Let this mind be in us. Let us trust people, maybe, if we haven't in a long time. So our second point here, how did the church grow in Antioch? First, I believe, was because of total member involvement. Secondly, through the ministry of encouragement. I wonder how much Barnabas did besides just encourage. I know he did other things, but perhaps that was his greatest contribution. I don't know about you, but there are times when I have to make a difficult choice, and there are times that I'm blessed enough that I can call up my father or my father-in-law and say, this is the situation that's happening. This is what I think we should do because of these things and those things. But I want to know your take on it. I want you to, to weigh in. And, you know, I try and be as non-biased as possible. And, let, and sometimes their feedback is, no, 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 Dave, that's the wrong thing to do. Okay, what should I do? But more often than not, they say, yep, that's exactly what you need to do. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun. But that's what you need to do. Because if you don't, just like you said, this and this and this, and if nothing changes as a result of that conversation, one thing does change, and that is I have a greater confidence that I'm going in the right direction, that I'm on the right path. And that's what encouragement does. Because if left to ourselves, we can be real quick to doubt, 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 doubt. And beyond the encouragement of others, we need to be encouraged in the Lord and encouraged in God's Word, don't we? Lord, are you sure this is what you want me to do? And he leads you to a passage of Scripture, and there's the principle yet again. Yep, this is what I need to do. Who in your experience has given you the gift of encouragement? Maybe you were first coming to the Lord and you, oops, fell off the wagon again. Who came alongside you and encouraged you? When that first ministry attempt failed, 
when your first sermon was, well, horrible, when your first special music was, well, that was interesting. Who encouraged you to keep practicing, to keep trying? Who assured you of the grace of Jesus and his plan and purpose for your life? When you were overwhelmed with loss and grief, who stepped in to listen, to walk beside you, to encourage you? Friends, is there still a need for encouragement today? And sometimes people will say, well, I don't want them to get a big head. Well, that exists, and people can become prideful. But for the most part, I don't know too many people that have been overly encouraged. Yes, you can come up with examples, and I can too. But for the most part, by and large, people are insecure, feeling that they're a fraud or a fake, and someday somebody's going to find out that they're not near as gifted as everybody thinks. They need encouragement. This past week, we got a nice letter in the mail, and this couple was just listing all the various things that have come across our plate over this last summer or so, and, you know, church building program, and serving at the conference office, health challenges in the family, four kids, one of them special needs, you finishing up this degree, all these kinds of things. And they just said, we just want you to know that we're praying for you, that we're in your corner, and we support you. Because we know it's got to be challenging, but we're, we're with you, we're there for you. And that just touched our hearts so much, to know that somebody was thinking of us and took the time to encourage us. And it's not that hard. Put pen to paper. It can be scratch paper. It can be a, a post-it note. It can be whatever. And put it in the mail. Pass it to them. Slip it in their pocket. Send them a text. Encourage. All right, we've got to be done. Let's finish here. We haven't even talked about Paul yet. Verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek who? Saul. I guess he's still Saul. He'll be Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, I mentioned before, that's about 100 miles away. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians. Where? In Antioch. Isn't that interesting? So God is blessing the work. Barnabas is amazed at what God is doing. The opportunities are great, but Barnabas recognizes in his own humility his need for help. And so he travels the 100 miles to Tarsus to look for Saul. He can't just put, find my friends. Oh, he's this far from me, or text him, or whatever. No, he has to physically, have you seen this guy? Where could I look? And all this kind of thing. Finally finds Saul. And yes, Barnabas has many gifts, but I would imagine Saul has many gifts too, and they're different. And they have, I imagine they complement each other. And I imagine even a mentoring relationship. And commentators argue over who's mentoring who. And I'm not so sure it, it so much matters. In areas of encouragement, I bet you Barnabas is mentoring Saul. And in, in other theological discourse and, and biblical ideas and how this is a fulfillment of this and that, I imagine Barnabas over there taking notes. And together, God is using them to build the church. But too often, we can become possessive of my ministry. Personally, I don't like those words, my ministry, because it's never your ministry. You can say our ministry. You can say God's ministry. But my ministry, that's, it should never be about me, right? And we shouldn't be threatened by people coming in. Well, what if they take my job? Praise the Lord. We'll find you another one. Well, what if somebody takes that job? Pastor, this happened to me four times. Praise the Lord, the church is growing. We'll free you up to do something else. So Barnabas isn't threatened. He sees that he has some weak areas that somebody else could fulfill. He understands that the angel that found Saul 
said, I have a work for you to do to spread to the Gentiles. Now he has Gentiles before him. All of a sudden, I imagine this man of the Holy Spirit, this man of faith is given the insight. What about Saul? Oh, yes, Saul. He can't be that far away. He's only 100 miles from here. I'm going to go find him. And he does. And as a result, I believe God's glory is manifest in the spread of the gospel. And we see God working in marked ways to the Gentiles. And Saul, again, while he was content where he was, notice he doesn't send out his resume. He doesn't shoot Barnabas an email and say, hey, do you need some help? Because it's awfully miserable over here in Tarsus. No, he just patiently waits until God calls him to something else. And after some prayer, he feels, yes, this is what God wants me to do. And he responds to go help, to work with the encourager, to build people up. And so the third thing, how did the church in Antioch grow? Yes, it was total member involvement. Yes, it was through the ministry of encouragement. But it was through the power of two. Through the power of two, I believe God will accomplish greater things than just you as a lone ranger. I believe that's why he sent out people two by two. I mean, you can make the argument then, you can make it today. Well, we could cover twice as much ground. And Jesus says, nope, it's not worth it. We'll have twice as many casualties, two by two. That's what we're going to do. So when one's discouraged, the other can lift him up. When a challenge arises, another to pray about the problem and, and to problem solve. God says on account of two or three witnesses. How do you do that as a lone ranger? No, there's power in two that are united in purpose, united in their work and united in the Lord. Rod, thank you for that scripture reading, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. And you might say, well, this is what they read at weddings. Well, yeah, sometimes they do, but it's not just talking about a husband and a wife. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. Think about any yard job you have in your house and somebody comes to help you with it. It doesn't go just twice as fast. It somehow goes more than twice as fast. There's more reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. That's what we are here as a church, to help each other up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? There's a lot of coldness out in this world. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, wait a second, Pastor. I thought we were talking about two. Who's this third? Well, there's you and your spouse. There's you and a close friend. There's you and your ministry partner. You say, I don't have a ministry partner. Well, you need to pray about that. But who's this third person? It's the Lord. God sent them two by two. But if you keep reading, you see the third person. He told them that they would never be alone and that he would be with them. Let's read it, Mark 6, verse 7. And he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power. There's the third what power is that? None other than the power of God. A three-cord strand cannot be easily broken or rope. So how will the church grow in Hendersonville? Total member involvement. Through the ministry of encouragement and through the power of two, or maybe we should say the power of three. You, a ministry partner, and God. Go visit with somebody. Encourage others with somebody. Help out in the ministry with somebody else. I'll do it if you'll do it with me. Let's do this together. Oh, that's because you're weak and you can't handle it. No, it's because I'm biblical and I want to do it God's way. We're stronger together. The idea of the church is God's idea to finish the work on this earth. And he's given us a unique message for the world at this time. Do you believe that? And when we band together as a body of believers with a common purpose, I believe God will bless. I mean, they had a common purpose back then, didn't they? 
that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man, that this was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, that this was a game changer and that they needed to know about it. And we have been given something in this end time that is unique, that is again a game changer that the world needs to know about. And what is it? Last day events. We've been studying that in our prayer meeting just down the hill. And it says in this on page 45 and 46, it's also in the testimonies. It says, in a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Whoa. That's strong language. This is the everlasting gospel. This is the three angels' message. This is what people need to know to live through the time of the end. We too have a message that needs to go to the world. And God longs for us to work together, to partner together as a church and with him to finish the work. And it's his work, but he calls us to be co-laborers with him. So how will the church in Hendersonville grow? Total member involvement through the ministry of encouragement and through the power of three. Will you be part of total member involvement? What does that look like? Every member doing something for Jesus. That's it. Well, I can't do much. Can you send text messages of encouragement? Well, I can do that. Does that mean you'll be involved in something? Uh Uh-huh. Then do it. Will you be a minister of encouragement? I mean, just look around. Find somebody. Say, Lord, show me who needs encouragement today. Will you engage in the power of three? You, a ministry partner in the Lord. And again, if you don't have a ministry partner, pray about that. Say, Lord, I want somebody to go visit with. Send me the right person that we can complement each other in this way. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Why? Because all they talked about was Christ this, Christ that, Christ, Christ, Christ. By God's grace, may we carry the same distinction to the world. What Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do is all there in the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. So let us boldly proclaim Christ to the world. And my appeal is simple. Will you join me? We have nothing to fear. Why? Because God is with us. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help each and every one here to be involved, to find prayerfully, if they don't already, a ministry partner that they can minister with and go out two by two, really three by three, as you have promised that you will be with us, that we may be an encouragement to one another and this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.